Hello, and welcome to Profiles, a program that introduces interesting people from Indiana, the United States, and the world to WFIU listeners. I'm Owen Johnson. On this occasion, we really have two guests. One is Professor James Capshu, a member of the faculty in the Department of the History and Philosophy of Science, and most importantly, the author of a new biography of the late president and chancellor of Indiana University, Herman B. Wells. Jim, welcome to Profiles. Thank you, Owen. And implicitly, Dr. Wells is also our guest. My first predecessor, Dr. Brian, who lived in Bloomington for 95 years and was associated with the university throughout all his adult life, had a rich store of anecdotes and recollections of the early life of the university. In fact, he had known many friends of the first president, Andrew Wiley. And the first president, Andrew Wiley, of the university, so it was alleged, had known George Washington as a boy. It was my later good fortune to share with Dr. Bryan his remembrances of things past. They became so much a part of me that I find myself occasionally reminiscing about George Washington. <laughs> Herman Wells, or Hermie as he was known to his good friends. Jim, you write that you grew up in the shadow of Indiana University. What are your memories of your early years here? I have a lot of memories of uh, swimming in the Third Street Park pool, uh, which is gone now. Then we moved to the Bryan Park area. The pools there were, were great. I had a grandmother who lived in um, Brown County. We often went to Brown County because her brothers and sisters were there. I uh, remember Kirkwood and the courthouse and the old library, all these um, wonderful places that are still existing. Oftentimes we would go to the Union Building when I was like seven or eight, and uh, we would uh, go down the up escalator until people told us to stop doing that. It was a lot of fun. Um, but I had no idea of who Herman Wells was for many, many years. What's your first memory of the Wells name? Not when you met him, but when did you first become aware of who he was? Probably when I was an undergraduate in the mid-1970s. He was the chancellor at that time, and he was this, you know, some revered figure that I didn't meet. I didn't know. My parents knew him uh, just as students. Uh, they were from the 50s as students. And uh, later on, my dad told me a story about meeting Dr. Wells on the campus and exchanging uh, pleasantries. And then every time he would see him on campus again after that uh, occasion, he would remember my dad's name. And so, you know, that's not an uncommon story. You graduated from IU Phi Beta Kappa in 1979 with a degree in psychology. But in graduate school, you went off to do the history and sociology of science. What led you in that direction? Well, I uh, got very interested in the history of science as an undergraduate. And I wrote my senior honors thesis on the history of psychology here at Indiana University. And it was wonderful because I was living with Dr. Wells at the time. I lived with him for two years, my junior and senior years. 
in my research, I found out that William O'Brien, his predecessor, started the Laboratory of Psychology in 1888. And so it was great to talk with, with Dr. Wells about Brian, about his personality, his character, and uh, sort of the early history of, of psychology fit right into my interest in the uh, history of psychology. Your your first job after you finished your PhD was principal investigator on the Goddard History Project in the NASA History Office. What did you find attractive about doing that kind of institutional history? Well, it was a it was a job. Okay, I got I got my PhD in in 1986, and I was living in Washington D.C. Uh, I was on a fellowship uh, at the Air Force History Office. And uh, that job came open. Uh, it was f- uh, through the University of Maryland History Department. I was a research associate there. It was interesting because I was interested in uh, contemporary science and technology. And Goddard had a very interesting history. It's the uh, area where they do near-Earth satellites, the Telstar, the first communication satellite, also the weather satellites. Um, and so uh, – I found it was very intriguing, and I was happy there for about three years uh, during the project. You came back to Bloomington then in 1990 uh, and worked on your first book, which was published a few years later called Psychologist on the March, which was about science and practice and professional identity, to borrow from the subtitle. Did that connect with that earlier interest that you'd gotten into in psychology here? Uh, Absolutely. In in some ways – it was great to come back to Indiana because my first uh, published work was the history of psychology at Indiana. And so that combined history of science and history of higher learning. And being back to Indiana, uh, it was great to see Dr. Wells again and have uh, weekly contact with him. And... I had determined that I wanted to write about him, uh, even as an undergraduate. But uh, I thought, well, that chance will not come. But then when I came back, I thought, well, there might be a chance for me to combine my interest in, in Indiana University history by writing a biography of Herman Wells. And so my first book really was History of Psychology. It was the, my tenure book and so forth. But then once I got done with that, I talked with Dr. Wells. I did a um, short article for the American National Biography on William O'Brien, which came out of my earlier research. And uh, I broached the subject with him. I said, you know, how about um, me doing a biography of you? And he just sort of laughed. He said, isn't there something better to do with your time? And he, every time – I talk with him. He would say that, but he also understood, and he let me know that that he understood that institutions like universities need figures that are held in high esteem, heroes, um, uh, exemplars, models, and he understood that he was, you know, this icon of this university, but. You know, he was a very modest man, and he didn't like attention paid to him as a person. But he understood that he was a symbol for the university. And in that way, he reluctantly agreed, yes, I can do this. But one of the problems you must have faced 
had to do with the fact that, as you describe very unwillingly, Wells had written an autobiography called Being Lucky in 1980. And here's Wells. I don't know whether he's reading from the book, but it's very much from the text of the book. As I look back, it seems to me that I was born in the best of all times and under the best of all possible circumstances. I was also extremely fortunate to have been born in a little town that afforded me, as a youngster growing up, a wonderful chance to explore nature and to know people. My best fortune of all was to have had for parents an ambitious young couple who were wise, encouraging, and loving. So how do you deal with a history already having been written? <laughs> well, yes, but that's a certain kind of history. It's a very sunny view of his life. Um, it actually doesn't tell you much about how he did it uh, as an administrator and, a, and as a teacher and a uh, public servant. Uh, he thanks tons of people. It's always about his colleagues. It's about, you know, he had a lot of help from everybody. So it was it was a very useful resource, but I also had to go into the archives to really look at the correspondence um, and reports and things like that that he produced and other people produced to really get a sense of you know what he did and how he did it. Uh, unfortunately, Wells was not very self reflective. He did not keep a diary. He did not keep a journal. He didn't uh, you know talk about his inner feelings. Okay. Uh, he was always oriented towards the future, wasn't concerned about his personal past. He had dealt with, you know, pretty interesting uh, circumstances as as a child, and he had uh, solved those problems to the best of his ability, and then he was able to move on. And so, uh, unfortunately, you know, in some ways, his interior life remains a mystery, but his life as a public figure is all around us here on this campus. Every area you can name, including WFIU, he left his imprint on. And in fact, the culture of this university has been changed and enhanced by his efforts. And so that's really what I was trying to do in the biography was to elucidate the life and also how he became an icon, because those are two different things, right? The man as a flesh and blood individual, and then also how he was constructed as this figure that symbolized a lot of the aspirations of the university and the state, and also even uh, American higher education, the challenge, even in the printed documents, um, as you mentioned, there are 1,100 linear feet of Wells material in the IU archive alone. How do you go through all that? I didn't. Basically, my good fortune was to hire a former IU archivist, Faye Mark, and uh, half time, and Faye worked for me for seven years going through selected parts of the Wells Archive in the uh, IU Archives. And so basically we identified certain areas, certain figures, certain 
um, correspondences that we needed to investigate further. My take on his life really I'm hoping to be comprehensive in terms of dealing with all the major areas that he dealt with. But my biography is not exhaustive. In other words, it doesn't go through day by day and inventory all of the things he did. It's a, it's, in some ways, it's a, um, a take that really tries to convey the character and the major areas of work he did uh, for the university and then the responses to that um, by other people. I mentioned before we talked about the um, fact that Wells had written an autobiography. There was also a three-volume history of Indiana University that was published in the 1970s, which covered Wells's era. How do you avoid telling a history of IU over again since Wells was so dominant in the period, especially when he was president? Actually, the four-volume work, three volumes of narrative history and then one volume of, of historical documents done by Thomas D. Clark in the 1970s. And Wells and Clark did a lot of uh, interviews, inter- video interviews and, and, and recorded interviews. Um, and the biggest volume of the narrative history is on the Wells administration, which does not – it's not surprising because there was a lot of things going on. I tried not to duplicate or or sort of rewrite the history of the university. I really wanted to focus on the Wells contribution and what how he made the environment possible for other people to create programs and to teach and learn and do scholarship and and so forth. And so the other thing with the Thomas Clark volumes, even though they're really well-written and uh, entertaining at, at times, uh, they lack footnotes. Uh, and that's not a great thing for a scholar because, you know, you don't know exactly where he got that from and, and so forth. And so I was determined to actually provide, you know, pretty extensive notes in my biography so people can then – Look back and 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 follow my my uh, sources, and then you know have arguments with those for- sources and things like that. But there are some certain areas where Clark does get it wrong, and that's not you know that's fine. That's uh, historians always are revising history, right? And so the other thing with the Clark volume is that um, it accords with uh, this very optimistic view of the university's history. And I think that's, you know, that's, that's a, a, a viable and a defensible point of view. But it's also, it, it does not get into some of the controversies, some of the personality issues that, that animate history. And, you know, I was very much aware of uh, the Clark volumes as I was writing mine, and it also helped me uh, know that I didn't have to do all original research on the history of the university, right? I I had to focus on Wells and his contribution. Did you ever interview Wells? Uh, Several times, but he was really um, fairly elderly, and he oftentimes just told us same old stories that I'd heard in other interviews. 
So I didn't get a whole lot of new information from him. And that's that's fine. It was great to always talk with him and, and just, you know, uh, talk about the future of the university and whatever. He he was very well-read, very interested in pretty much everything and anything. This might be a good time um, to break for music. Normally on Profiles, the music has special meaning for the guest. And I guess it does in this case, but um, this first selection is Be Yourself. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Be Yourself was composed by Newell Long and his, and his wife in honor of Wells's inauguration as president in 1938. And um, it was played at his inauguration, apparently. I don't have details on that. But it also be- became this um, wonderful litany of Wells's qualities, his personality, his character. And it was played again at his retirement in 1962. And so in some ways, it shows how people saw Wells um, as this fun-loving, wonderful person that um, had a certain savoir-faire that he was himself, right? Most people are not themselves, right? Wells was deeply himself, and uh, it's hard to articulate that quality, but most people, when they met him, could recognize that, and that also called forth a reciprocal quality of themselves, right? He, He was a person who could really evoke people's best from themselves, right? I don't know. It's hard. Yeah, it's hard to articulate that. So this is Be Yourself, which eventually became part in 1962 of the program All's Wells That Ends Well by Newell and Eleanor Long. Be what might the be. by Newell and Eleanor Long, a song about Herman Wells, originally performed in 1938. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. Our guest is Jim Capshu, the author of a new biography of Herman Wells. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Wells was something of a wunderkind. He rose quickly to um, the presidency, 
Uh, and when he was asked to be interim president, he told the story this way. I was out of my cabin in Brown County. I was sleeping out there, and about midnight, the telephone rang, and I knew uh, the lights were all off, of course, in Brown County. By that time, they turned the electricity off at, at midnight, and then the telephone only rang in case of dire emergency after 10, after 10 o'clock. So uh, I knew it must be something important, and I got on the telephone. It was Judge Willermuth, who was then president of the board. And, and uh, I said, what's uh, is something on fire? <laughs> and he, he said, no, we're in, uh, the board's in session. And Dr. Bryan startled us this afternoon by telling us that he's going to quit. And, and he wants to step out by July 1st. Now, we knew he, he said he was going to go soon, but we didn't expect him to go that fast. He was then 76. And uh, we finally decided we want to make you acting president starting July 1st. I said, well, I, that, that's, I don't think that's a very good idea. I think there are a lot of other uh, people that are better qualified than I am to, to, to do that. Uh, I shouldn't say that to you as chairman of the board. And the judge was a man of great candor, of course. He said, the reason we want, want you is we know we don't want you for permanent president. <laughs> so so if you take uh, if you take the... Uh, acting presidency, that'll give us time to look around. According to your book, Judge Wildermuth was one of Wells's strongest supporters, which becomes very complicated because of what we now know about Judge Wildermuth. Was, did this complicate your analysis? Well, let, let me back up a little bit on the story that Wells tells. Um, he often said, uh, don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. And this is an example of him embellishing the record, uh, adding a little bit of color and things like that. Obviously, the, there, there's some truth to the story. But uh, as I recount in my book, uh, Wells understood well that he was a candidate for the permanent president. And um, there were a lot of people rooting for him and working behind the scenes for that to happen. And Judge Wildermuth became a, a great supporter of Wells by the end of the nine-month acting presidency. But it's a great story, and it, it's just you know part of the being lucky myth in some ways. Judge Wildermuth, I mean, uh, what to say about him? Uh, the Wildermuth Recreational Center at Hyper, uh, he was a very... Uh, strong and productive uh, member of the Board of Trustees and the present, often, oftentimes during Wells' uh, early administration. Uh, he was a great friend of Wells, but he also had uh, some pretty um, despicable ideas about racial uh, uh, mixing and equality and things like that that Wells did not uh, hold. Um, I find it's interesting that... Um, the the Miller move material that has come to light a few years ago, uh, mostly in a uh, form of letters to uh, people. I mean, that, this is not something that's totally unprecedented. Uh, people did have pretty backwards ideas about uh, race, um, and I'm not trying to excuse. Wildermuth, but I also think that 
Wells was able to uh, counter whatever racism that he encountered uh, in the the policies and practices of IU. And so my considered judgment is that uh, Wildermuth did have, you know, some negative ideas in light of our current understanding of uh, racial uh, equality. But Wells was able to counteract that or uh, avoid that in terms of how he ran the university. Wells is normally given credit for helping to integrate not only Indiana University but also to some degree um, the the city of Bloomington. Some critics say, however, he didn't start doing that until at least after World War II. What's your opinion? My opinion is based on what I found in the archives and Wells was not out front on the issue during World War II. But in 1942, during the war, uh, the black students organized a black student council. They met. They took their complaints to the president. And he reacted quite quickly, talked to his assistants uh, about, you know, various like the union building and the athletic department and things like that. And he he made uh, quick adjustments uh, to end the you know practice of inst- institutional racism. Of course, the university has always been open to people of all colors ever since it started. But in the early 20th century, it, it got bigger, and there were just like uh, Indiana society, uh, there were some very uh, unprogressive notions about uh, race. And so, but Wells was very much um, then, once he knew of the problem, he started working with the black students, uh, working with his administration to get rid of the uh, practice of segregation on the campus. And then he understood that his power really stopped at the campus boundary, at the corner of Kirkwood and, and Indiana. But then he also understood that uh, he could be a force for for integrating the restaurants in Bloomington. And uh, that was in the 1950s where he had a meeting with the Bloomington Restaurant Association uh, proprietors and basically threatened economic blackmail, that if they didn't allow blacks to eat at their establishments, he would um, expand campus dining uh, facilities and bar students f- from eating off campus. I mean, I don't know whether he could actually do that, but but anyway, that, that it was effective. There were still a couple of of, of uh, establishments that did not let uh, blacks in, but in general, that was the beginnings of uh, integrated dining. Um, there's a great story that uh, George Taliaferro tells, uh, both to me as an interviewer, but also. Uh, in his in in the book about him, about uh, in 1947 or eight, uh, he was complaining to Wells that he couldn't get a sandwich at the uh, Gables, which was the old book nook. And uh, Wells picked up the phone and talked to the owner of the Gable and said, "You know, 
uh, why don't you let George in? Uh, he said, well, you know, I'm, I'm not prejudiced, but my, some of my customers are, right? That's the usual hiding behind the fact. But he said, well, okay, let's, let's try this out for, for a week. Uh, let George and his date come in and see what happens. Well, nothing happened. And then the experiment lasted for another week with George, one of his, George's friends and his date, right? Nothing happened. So then at that point, then Gables was, you know, integrated. And so that was an example of well sort of using the power of his office, but also be, uh, being unobtrusive and not ruffling a lot of feathers, right? He was a master uh, at saving face, uh, being empathetic to everybody, and even his, uh, you know, his, his opponents. And that's an unusual uh, characteristic. Most people get enemies or they, they have people who are antagonistic to them for whatever reason. I couldn't find anybody who uh, considered Wells as an enemy. One of the interesting stories you tell in your book is um, in connection with this issue is uh, when Wells um, spoke on Layperson Sunday at First United Methodist Church. Yeah, First Methodist Church at that point, yeah, yeah, in 1944. I don't know whether he was arguing in favor of integration or just these are all God's children. Why did he – it seems so much out of character. How do you explain it? I really think that his his experience with the black student council at IU and, you know, understanding his institution, the one that he belonged to, didn't belong to him. He belonged to it, okay? That's important to think about, that he needed to do more than just integrate the campus, you know, let everybody eat and have, you know, black people on the on the sports teams and things like that. But he wanted to make a statement. And that was an interesting uh, way of doing that. Uh, he did a, a sermon at uh, Layman's Sunday at the First Methodist Church about the brotherhood of man. And it was totally about how American society has been um, prejudiced against Negroes. And... Uh, here we are in World War II, and we're fighting um, on behalf of the American way of life. And that's almost a cancer on the American way of life. And I think he really realized through the students' complaints and trying to address that problem that he needed to really you know, step up and be recognized. But, of course, he, he understood that you know, his authority really ended at the campus level. Okay, but that was a, a way to get the message across and basically affirm uh, to to the public that this is something that you know the president of this university is in favor of integration and desegregation, and he had some authority and power to do that at least on the campus. I don't think it was really a. Um, out of character, but it was sort of putting himself out there, being a leader on that issue. You also mentioned in the book uh, about Wells's role in helping bring Marion Anderson um, to campus. What motivated him to do that? I don't have a uh, document 
to tell me about that. Um, her first visit was in 1942. It wasn't that much earlier when she made a huge uh, public concert um, at the steps of the Lincoln Memorial uh, in Washington, D.C., and was the guest of FDR and Eleanor Roosevelt. And I think, um, again, that was another way of sort of signaling to the campus, to Bloomington, to the state of Indiana, that, you know, we can take artistic merit. doesn't matter what color. It doesn't matter what creed. It doesn't matter except the quality. Okay? And so... You know that's uh, an affirmation of the the uh, you know the focus on 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 excellence and quality, uh, and not worrying about uh, extraneous uh, aspects of you know a person's color or race or whatever. But I, but then what happens is that she came back two other times, right, in 1946 and then in 1956. I, I think the one in 1956 was Wells trying to sort of get her back here and say, you know, look what we've done here at Indiana University. You know, it's been 10 years. We've really tried to get rid of the the racism that was in the uh, the practices on some uh, the campus and then also uh, also in Bloomington. And so I think it was just a, another way of him being able to do that and not draw attention to the fact that he was trying to be an example. Uh, having the university set an example for the the students, but also for the state. I think this next piece of music then is somewhat symbolic. With, um, Angela Brown, who sang both at his 90th birthday party and then in the commemoration after his his death, because it reflects both um, Wells's support for blacks as well as his love for the school of music. That was Angela Brown, music chosen by our guest on Profiles today, Jim Capshu, the author of the new biography of Herman Wells while he was at Indiana University. Let's go back to 1938 when Herman Wells became the permanent president. It clearly, I think, even then marked a new era uh, as is somewhat evident by this an, this excerpt from a speech at his inauguration. Indiana University is a dynamic institution 
in a dynamic world. The brilliant chapter in the history of our university written during President Bryan's administration has been completed. We must of necessity, during the next century of academic history, university education in this republic will be largely in the hands of the tax-supported institutions. As they fare, so fares the cultural and intellectual life of the American people. The university cannot discharge any of its obligations to society unless it is first and foremost an institution dedicated to scholarship and scholarly objectives. What do you think were Herman Wells' biggest accomplishments during the 25 years he was president? Reflecting compared to this. I know it's a big question. It's a big question. Okay, well, think about 1938. That's almost 75 years ago. Okay, It's been 50 years since Wells retired from the presidency and he was president for 25 years. And so a lot of the current shape of the university, you can trace back to the Wells influence. One of the signal thing he he did was to really reemphasize the research ideal uh, at this research university. Um, Brian was a scientist; uh, he supported research, but he wasn't. He was really more concerned about education of the state citizens and uh, getting a uh, administrative structure set for the university. Wells really built on that that structure and f- focused on research accomplishments when he replaced faculty and built new buildings and populated the campus. So the research idea was a, a, a huge thing. The second thing was the focus on the arts. Wells loved the arts. He loved music. He loved the visual arts. He loved the plastic arts, dancing, drama, you name it. He had a lot of experience as a child and going to Chautauquas and being in the Jamestown Boys Band and also the IU Band, things like that. And so he um, hired people who could um, do the job. He hired Henry Hope uh, in 1942 uh, as a one-person in a two-person art department. And Henry Hope basically spearheaded the art uh, department and the IU Art Museum uh, to its current standing. He also hired Wilfred Bain as the dean of the music school in 1947. And Bain, he had ambitions to have an opera program, a university opera program. He told Wells about that, and Wells said, go for it. I want opera. And so the music school started an opera program back, I think, in 1948. So that was something that, that both the, the fine arts and also the musical areas were under very uh, creative and accomplished individuals. And so Wells basically said, you know, do your job and I'm going to be supporting you. The humanities were also a big area of concern. He hired Robert Miller in 1942 to oversee the library system. And he got the Lilly Library uh, donated by J.K. Lilly uh, in the 1950s. 
And so the rare books just exploded uh, at Indiana. And that was just a, a huge boon to the library system because that, that served not just the local needs but the national and international needs of scholars. And so the, the library is quite important for the humanities, right? You need to have books. So then uh, it was all part of this sort of this overall plan to increase the research and creative activities accomplishments of the faculty. He also understood that we need to have good buildings and facilities, specialized facilities. His first building completed under his administration was the IU Auditorium, which was a linchpin in terms of the music program. And also, it's part of the the history of the art department because we've got the Thomas Hart Benton murals for the lobby, which was a, a huge a boon to the to the university in, in the 1930s, actually. And so you can see that Wells focused on the arts, on research, on facilities. Uh, he al- always was looking to buy more land for the university. When he became president, the land area was about 137 acres. When he retired 25 years later, the campus footprint was like 1,800 acres. Currently, it's like 2,000 acres. So the bulk of the campus was during the Wells administration because he understood that the campus will be getting bigger and we need to have a a contiguous area, right? So it's our own little spot and uh, room to grow. And he was also very concerned about the architectural quality of the buildings, having fountains and other kinds of cultural attractions were important. He was a big tree hugger. He loved Dunn's Woods because that was the campus when he came here in 1921 as an undergraduate. So he had a huge affection for the woodland character of the campus, and he extended that character throughout the campus uh, as the campus grew. And so those, all these areas, right, those are things that are on campus. Then he was, got interested uh, through his travels overseas and through the experience of World War II in international education. And so the, the IU campus in Bloomington uh, exploded with foreign language programs, area studies programs, uh, to the point where IU is very much a leader in public universities who have an international focus. Uh, he also did a lot of university assistance to other universities in other parts of the world to uh, bring uh, administrative um, uh, advancement and, and other programs to other f- foreign universities. And so Indiana is very internationally focused. And he loved his, um, his, his symbols of office, right? He's got the school bell which relates to his parents both being school teachers. Then he's got the beggar's bowl to the side, which is about his job as the chief fundraiser and getting the material resources to make the university run. And then the globe is right there under his hand. And that's, you know, the the university is located in Bloomington, but the programs and people are extend all around the world, okay? And so the idea of a global or international presence uh, was very much uh, 
part of his thinking, right? That this was part of the American university, that this is, you know, uh, something that we need to share with the rest of the world. The students had a great deal of affection for Wells. Why? Well, he was he was always around, right? He was always traveling somewhere, but he also was on campus all the time. It's hard to know how he did that, right? But he timed his walks through campus when the students were uh, passing between classes, for instance, because he loved to see students, right? He liked to engage in a conversation. He would recognize people. He would, uh, you know... Uh, uh, one black student in the 1950s, Orlando Taylor, who then became a faculty member later on in the 70s, Orlando told me that um, one day he was he was a master's student in speech and hearing, and he was walking on campus, and Dr. Wells came up and said, hi, Orlando, and they had never met, and he couldn't believe what's going on, okay? Well, Wells sort of had his finger on the pulse of the students and he was recognized people and trying to like foster this great camaraderie and community, right? He also uh, had open office hours as a president. Uh, every uh, week he would have a couple, a few hours and people could go into his office and sit around the fire. Uh, in fact, uh, Ernie Pyle, one of your heroes, talks about that in a in a uh, remembrance of of Wells about uh he would um have them come and he would help them out give them money whatever they needed right he was just this guy who you know was was all about other people it wasn't about himself it wasn't trying to be the popular guy he was just a beloved figure and uh, he was able to make those connections to students Generation after generation after generation, okay? He was very frustrated in the late 60s where he couldn't make good connections with the students who were protesting. The SDS had uh, a big protest on campus. But, you know, that was, that was the exception. But I think he had this wonderful social intelligence that he was able to relate to pretty much everybody and anybody, at one point, Wells talked about his views on, on students and the recognition that they change from generation to generation. Students have always raised questions, of course. I know of no student generation that has accepted everything it was told, that hasn't been curious about new possibilities. Curiosity is the best kind of motivation for learning and discovering. Even troublesome questions have a virtue. For they stimulate us to make sure our assumptions are well-founded. It's a great statement of his attitude, I think. Um, I don't know the, the exact date of that, but I, I, I think it's, it's representative of his attitudes towards people. I'd like to finish with two quick questions. One of them, what do you like best about Herman Wells? Wow, that's a that's a big question. He's a remarkable person in the sense that he had no ego. And that's really unusual that it was all about his dedication to a larger cause, 
the education of Indian University students and, by extension, American students and, by extension, uh, people from around the globe. And he was very unselfish. And I try to even imagine being even a tenth of his unselfishness. So I think that that lack of ego and this lack of pretension and selfishness is it's a great um, beacon, I think, not just for me, but for other people, that he is a person who is um, unusual in the, in the extent of his humanity. Uh, he's deeply human. What do you find most difficult to understand about Dr. Wells? I'm still trying to figure out how he thought about things, right? Did he have views that he never told anybody because um, he was a very he was a master uh, pol- politician in in all you know in the good way right he kept his own counsel um, he did not offend people but but you know sometimes i I'd like to know whether he sort of had already transcended that or was it something that he had to struggle with and you know what kinds of private sorrows that he that he had that he didn't share with anybody. That brings us to the conclusion of this conversation. Our guest today has been Professor James Capshu, author of Herman B. Wells, The Promise of the American University, published in spring 2012 by the Indiana University Press. Jim, thanks for being here. Thank you very much, Owen. To our listeners, we're pleased you joined us. We close with more music from All's Wells that ends well by Newell Long. This is Our Herman B. Wells. For WFIU, I'm Owen Johnson. This man has many, many virtues, virtues that heroes share. Tactful like Emily Post, he's so correct. Him they would welcome anywhere. They would welcome anywhere. His knack remembering names is wonderful. Diplomatic and so rare. Disraeli never equaled our Herman. Boom, boom. At home the perfect host. Boom, boom. With students he's the most. Boom, boom. He isn't one to boast our Herman True to all good Hoosiers, faithful to old IU. Works hard and steady on this big job. He fights hard for both the old and new. The program you just heard was recorded in April of 2012. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. 
Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.